Well, hey, welcome to Center Church. My name is Josh Miller. I'm one of the pastors here. And if you're new with us, if this is your second or third time, man, we are really, really honored that you're here. We would love to get to know you and help you get connected. And man, I just want to encourage you, if you were here last weekend, last weekend was an awesome weekend in the life of our church, okay? We got to baptize three brand new believers, people who have come to faith in Christ through your ministry here in our community. So these are people that went from death to life, that went from being, man, children of the world to children of God, from condemned to justified over the last couple of months through the ministry of our church. And it was incredible. And if you heard any of those testimonies, it was just like weeping worthy, right? They're just incredible testimonies to God, God's grace. We got to launch our student ministry. So we had middle school students getting together, studying the words of God, man, welcoming people, opening doors, learning what it looks like to follow Christ. And we had over 250 people on this campus. So can we just give God a big round of applause for that? It, it was an incredible weekend, and I'm always excited when lots of people come to worship because God does a powerful thing when we gather to worship, and we need to worship. We need to sit under the preaching of God's word. We need to come together and worship like Pastor Justin said. But here's what we found. If you really want to see lasting change in your life, you not only need to gather on Sunday, you also need to scatter into groups during the week. Okay, and in those groups, you need to apply what you've heard. You need to build meaningful relationships so that the church can go from being that church to my church. And so that these people can go from those people to my people. And the way we do that here at Center Church is through what we call missional communities, okay? Missional communities, and we have 14 different MCs that meet on different nights of the week and in different parts of our community. And we have almost 30 men and women who lead those groups, okay? The 30 men and women that lead our MCs are some of the very best people at our church. I thank God for them because week after week, they, man, open their homes, man, they open God's word, they're hospitable, they coordinate prayer requests, they coordinate meal trains, and they deal with you. Okay, and you don't even like dealing with you, right? But they deal with you and they do it faithfully and humbly because they're awesome. So can we just honor our MC leaders by giving them a big round of applause? I think that would be fantastic. And uh, man, we have some incredible MC leaders, but, but here's the truth. We want some more, okay? We want some more MC leaders because you guys respond to new missional communities like people respond to Hamilton tickets, okay? It's like as soon as we launch a new MC, it fills up. So we launched two new MCs last month. They're both in double digits already. So man, we want to plant some new MCs to care for the people that God is bringing here so that, man, you, if you're new, can connect with other people and build relationships and, man, grow in Christ. We also want to plant new MCs so that we can reach new people. We have folks coming on Sunday from, man, Fluvanna, from Greene County, from Crozet. We had a couple last week, if you're here, I hope you're back, from Richmond last week to like drove all the way from here from Richmond. They said, hey, are there any groups near where we live? Okay, so what we want to do is we want to start new groups in new directions so that we can meet, so we can reach new people in new directions. And so here's the deal. Chapter two of Exodus is all about how God providentially prepared Moses for spiritual leadership. All right, if you got to leave early, that is what the sermon is about, how God prepared Moses for spiritual leadership. Here's the question I want to ask you right now. Is it that God is preparing you for spiritual leadership? Right, God is going to call Moses up into a position of spiritual leadership for the good of other people. Could he be doing that in your life? Okay, and if you get to the end of the sermon and you think, Josh, I think that might be what God is doing. Maybe he's been stirring that for months now and I just kind of put some words to it. Or maybe you feel the spirit of God kind of putting that on your heart in this sermon today. We're going to give you a chance to let us know that at the end of the sermon so that we can just walk with you and talk about next steps. Okay, so we'll give you a chance. We'll be really clear about how to do that. But I just want to invite you to pray with me to praise God for all that he's doing here and that we would be prepared to hear from him in Exodus 2. Okay, let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, I just praise you for the incredible grace that you've shown to this church, not because we deserve it, but because you're good. I thank you for the lives that have been changed. I thank you for the marriages that have been strengthened. I thank you for the families that have been built up. And God, I just pray that you continue to do that. You continue to do exceedingly abundantly more than we could ask or imagine for the sake of your name. And God, as we look at Exodus chapter 2, Lord, I pray that you would just give us ears to hear, you'd give us eyes to see, and you'd give us hearts to believe what you have to say to us, that we might respond faithfully to your word. We love you for all this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. If you have a Bible, you can take it out, you can type to or turn to Exodus chapter 2, okay? Exodus chapter 2. Last week, I told you that Christians don't believe in luck, karma, or coincidence, but Christians believe in providence, okay? Providence. And the doctrine of providence says this, that God is always orchestrating the events of the world and your life towards his glory and his people's good, okay? Providence means that God is always orchestrating the events of the world and your life towards his glory and his people's good. And chapter one of Exodus was about God's providence generally, whereas chapter two of Exodus is about God's providence specifically, So chapter one was about God's providence towards the nation of Israel. Chapter two is about God's providence in Moses's life. You see, as we walk through chapter two of Exodus, we're gonna see four ways that God providentially prepared Moses for his calling. Four ways that God brought events and situations together to prepare Moses to be the deliverer of his people. But here's the thing. This chapter isn't just about Moses. This chapter is also for us. Because God is continuing to prepare his people for good works that he has prepared for them to walk in. And so as we walk through Exodus chapter 2 and you see how God providentially prepared Moses, I want you to ask the question, man, how has God been preparing me? How has God been preparing me and how is God calling me to step into the good works that he has prepared for me to do? All right, look at verse 1 with me. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. So this is Moses' mom and dad. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and dabbed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. So chapter 1 ended with Pharaoh saying, every son born to the Hebrews shall be thrown into the Nile. So when Moses' mom and dad hear, it's a boy, It wasn't that joyful because it meant our child is in grave danger. And so they did what all good parents would do. They hid the child from harm for as long as they could. But if you've ever had a baby, here's what you know. For the first three months, you can hide a baby. You can't hide a baby after that, right? They just get louder. They get more active. They get more fun. But like, you just cannot hide a baby after three months. And so at four months, Moses' mom and dad had to do something incredibly, incredibly difficult. Man, they, they had to just prepare Moses and then entrust him to the Lord. And so what they did is they, they took a basket made of bulrushes and they, they dabbed it with bitumen and p- pitch. And then Moses' mom took him down to man, the side of the Nile River and put the baby in the basket and put the basket in the river, kind of in the, in the reeds. And I guess they were hoping maybe someone will come along and have pity on this child and take this child into their home and, and then our child will be spared. So best case scenario, we watch an Egyptian person come and take our child and maybe we never see them again. Now, what's interesting is that the word used for basket in Exodus chapter 2 is the exact same word used for ark with Noah's ark. And what Moses' mother dabbed that basket with, bitumen and pitch, is the exact same thing that Noah dabbed the ark with back in Genesis. You see, in the same way that God delivered Noah from judgment in an ark through the water, 
God is going to deliver Moses from judgment in the water through a basket. Right? What we're supposed to see is that Moses was never more secure than when he was in that basket. Because even though he had no human protection, he had divine protection. Right? And in the same way for us today, even when you feel like you have no human refuge, the scriptures say that you have a divine refuge that is stronger than any enemy that can come against it, even when your circumstances don't seem that way. Right? The author of, of, of Exodus is showing us all that. He's using these words. But here's the thing. Moses' parents didn't know that. Right? All Moses' parents knew was, we just put our baby boy in a basket at the side of a river. Will someone come and save him? Will our child be delivered? And here's the reality. Moses' parents had to do immediately what all parents have to do eventually. Moses' parents had to do immediately what all parents have to do eventually. They had to prepare their child as best as they could and then entrust him to the Lord. Right? And that is what we all have to do with our children. And that is the goal of Christian parenting, to prepare our kids as well as we possibly can and then to launch them out into the world and trust God. But we have a really, really hard time getting this right, don't we? Man, some of us overprotect our kids, right? We're sort of the helicopter parent. You know what I'm talking about? Like, man, we're going to put our kids in a bubble wrap and they're never going to get hurt and everything's going to go well. And we're going to protect them from the world. But here's what we all know. When you do that, you're not really protecting your kids. You're just making them naive. Right? You can't protect them from everything, and the world is coming, whether we want it to or not. So, so overprotecting isn't really the goal. Um, others of us actually underprotect our kids. It's like, here, Johnny, here's an iPad. Hope it goes well. You know, like, like just do whatever you want. Um, I, I uh, read, uh, heard about a study recently that says the average age that a child in America gets a cell phone, a smartphone, is nine years old. And the average age that a child in America is exposed to pornographic material is nine years old. I just don't think it's a coincidence. Right? So... So we, we need to not overprotect our kids and helicopter parent, but we also need to not underprotect our kids and kind of be like the friend parent, you know, like I just want to be my kid's friend. So what is our goal? If, if you're trying to raise your kids in the Lord, what is your goal? You want your kids to be innocent but not naive. Okay, you want your kids to be innocent but not naive. You want to protect them from harmful influences, but you want them to understand, man, what is right, what is wrong, what the world is about, God's word, what it says, that many people reject it. Right? That is the goal, innocent but not naive. And there is a lot that could be said about how you parent in that way, and I don't have all the answers. But here's one way that you could pursue that with your children. You ready? Talk to them candidly about all the things that our culture is talking about. Okay, so talk to them candidly about God's design for gender, sexuality, marriage, and family. And now do it in an age-appropriate way, but here's the thing. You want them to hear about that from you and not from YouTube. Okay, you want them to hear about that from you, from parents who love them, who have wisdom, who have the scriptures, who have the church, and not from the sixth grader on the bus. Because the reality is our world says something very, very differently than what God's word says. And we, it's our job as parents to invest into our children the truth of God's word so that when they hear that at school or they see that in the world, they say, oh yeah, mom and dad have already talked to me about that. I'm not shocked. It's not like mom and dad live under a rock, but we have talked about it. There's probably a bunch of other ways to do this well. If you figure out exactly how to raise your kids so that they're innocent but not naive, come and talk to me, okay? It's not an easy balance, but that's what we're called to do. So Moses' parents, man, prepared him as well as they could. They put him out on the waters, and they entrusted him to God. Verse 5, now, the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. So verse 5 is one of the clearest examples of providence in the entire book of Exodus. Pharaoh's daughter was the right person at the right place at the right time. 
In fact, she was one of only a handful of Egyptians who could adopt a Hebrew baby boy without facing reprisal. Right? When you're Pharaoh's daughter, you get to do what you want. So it was the right person at the right time, at the right place. She heard the baby crying, and the text says that she felt pity for the baby. That word pity is used of God to describe how God feels about his people in Psalm 72 and how Jesus felt towards a leper in Mark chapter 1. Right person, right place, right time, right feeling. So she takes the baby, and then verse 7. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother, and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. So Moses had an older sister named Miriam, and as older sisters are prone to do, she was snooping around, right? And so she's, she's kind of checking on her little brother, what's going to happen? She sees all this go down, so she calls out and she says, hey, do you want me to call a Hebrew woman to nurse this baby for you? And Pharaoh's daughter says, yes, go and do that, and I'll pay her. So in the providence of God, not only does Moses not die in the river, but Moses is adopted by the very family that was trying to kill him, and then Moses was returned to his mother to be nursed, and she was paid for it. And some of your moms are like, I'd like to get some providence in my life, right? Like, how we get this situation going? <laughs> right? It's just crazy. Isn't that beautiful and crazy? That is God's providence. The very family that had ordered the destruction of the Hebrew children takes Moses, the deliverer of the Hebrew people, into their family. And then she says, hey, who can raise, who can raise this child for me and, and nurse this child for me? And Miriam says, well, I could go call someone. And she calls Moses' mother. And scholars think that Moses spent the next nine to ten years in his family's household. And that is incredibly important. Again, that is providential because what most studies show is that, man, kids basically believe what they're going to believe by age 12. That by the time you reach age 12, most of your worldview has sort of been established, and it's not usual that someone changes drastically after age 12. And so in the providence of God, what happened? Moses spent the first 10 years of his life, maybe the most formative years of his life, in the household of his family learning about the God of Israel. And we know that Pharaoh's parents did a good job investing in him. We know that they didn't waste his time because even after Moses spent three decades in the household of Pharaoh, he still thought of himself as a Hebrew. Even though he was culturally Egyptian, he was educated as Egyptian, he wore clothing that was Egyptian, he ate Egyptian food, he still thought of himself as one of God's people. Why? Because his family had invested the promises of God into him for the first 10 years of his life. And which leads to the first way that God prepares us in this text. Number one, God prepares us through family. God prepares us through family. The Bible talks about something that, that you could call generational blessing. Okay, generational blessing. And genera uh, generational blessing means that your kids can become more than you because of you. Your kids can become more than you because of you. Good parents are a tailwind that helps their kids go further faster. Right? We see this in Moses' life. We see this all through the scriptures. Timothy was an important pastor in the early church. Paul wrote several letters to him, First and Second Timothy. Where did he learn the faith from? His grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice. John Mark wrote the gospel of Mark. It's a pretty big deal if you write one of the gospels. Right? Where did he learn the faith from? His uncle Barnabas and his mom. Right? We see this throughout the scriptures. We see this in church history. So Augustine, the great African bishop, who's one of the most influential Christians of all of history, Man was prayed for by his devout mother for years and years and years before he came to Christ. John and Charles Wesley founded the Methodist denomination. They had a prodigiously godly mom and an okay godly dad. <laughs> they had, their dad was okay. Their mom was awesome, right? And they ended up making this incredible impact for Christ. You see, from a worldly perspective, from a worldly perspective, everything about Moses' birth was wrong, right? He was born at the wrong time. 
He was born of the wrong gender. He was born of the wrong ethnicity. And he was born into the wrong economic class. Everything from a worldly perspective was wrong. And yet, from a spiritual perspective, Moses had something that was very, very important. Two godly parents. See, he's, here's the reality. If you have godly parents, you have a lot. If you have godly parents, you have a lot, even if you don't have a big house and a shiny car and designer clothes, right? If you have godly parents, you have a lot. And one of the ways that God prepares us is through our family. So what does this mean for us today? Well, it means if you have godly parents, thank God for them. You are standing on their shoulders. You have a chance to be more than them because of them. You have a chance to be more godly, to be more faithful, to be a better witness at work, to build a better marriage, to be a better parent. Why? Because you are standing on their shoulders, right? You can be more than them because of them. Man, if you're a parent, this means that you have an opportunity to make a massive impact in your children's lives. Look, you may not be able to send them to Disney. You may not be able to give them a private school education. You might not be able to buy them all the things that they will ever want to own. But you can give them the most important thing, which is godly parents, Man, you can be a tailwind in your kids' lives, helping them be more than you because of you. Or as one pastor put it, your greatest contribution to the kingdom of God may not be something you do, it may be someone you raise. Your greatest contribution to the kingdom of God may not be something you do, it may be someone you raise. Man, just like Augustine's mom, just like John and Charles Wesley's parents. So if, if you are a parent, man, it's an incredible opportunity we have an incredible privilege and responsibility to invest in our children. And if you don't have godly parents, if you don't come from a godly family, you know how true this principle is, right? Because you've been battling a headwind your entire life. Like, it is hard to follow Jesus when your family is going the opposite direction. And if that's you, I just want to say to you, there is hope. You see, where the ideal is lacking, the grace of God fills in the gaps, I think about Timothy, who I mentioned earlier, this incredible leader in the early church. He didn't have a godly dad. Some scholars think his dad wasn't around at all, that he was raised by a single mom. But in God's grace, he brought the apostle Paul into Timothy's life, and Paul played the role of dad to Timothy. That's why in 1 Timothy, he's saying, hey, man, be strong. Man, stand up. You can do this. Don't let anybody look down on you for your youth. What is that? Man, that's just a dad encouraging his son. So what that means is by the grace of God and through the church of God, you can become the first link in a brand new family chain. You can become the first link in a brand new chain of generational blessing so that your kids can become more than you because of you. So here's the question. Based on your family, what is God preparing you to do? Based on your family, what is God preparing you to do? I was talking to one of our members whose family speaks Spanish, and God is increasingly birthing in him a burden for Hispanic ministry. Where is that coming from? It's coming from his family. Maybe you didn't have godly parents, and so you are passionate about, about changing that. You are passionate about investing in the next generation. You're passionate about investing in, in other kids who don't have dads because you didn't have a dad growing up. Right? What is that? That is God using your background, the good and the bad, to shape you and to prepare you. Look, we want to be a church that builds strong families, whether those are physical, biological families or spiritual families, so that our kids can become more than us because of us, all right, just like Moses was for his family. All right, verse 10, when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son, and she named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. So when he was nine or 10, Moses went to live in Pharaoh's house, which means he entered into the royal community. So, so think 
Man, palaces, parties, and power. All right, that is what Moses' life became. Palaces, power, and parties. And we're told in Acts chapter 7, verse 22, this, that Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and that he was mighty in his words and deeds. So practically what that means is that Moses went to Harvard. It's true. I mean, Egypt was the superpower of the day. Very few people got educated, but the royal family was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. Why? So that they could continue to be in power. And so in the providence of God, Moses got the very best education possible. And he was mighty in word and deed. You know, sometimes um, people say, hey, God can use anybody. And that's true, he can. But oftentimes, God likes to prepare the people that he uses, right? We see this throughout the scripture. And think about it here. This is, this is beautiful. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, okay? How did God prepare the author that would write the first five books of the Bible? He sent him to Harvard. That's what happened. God in his providence was like, I need somebody that knows how to write. And so, Moses, you're going to go get the very best education possible. So in about 80 years, when I need somebody to write the first five books of the Bible, you're up. Because you know how to write sentences without comma splices, okay? Like, that is what that means, right? Which leads to the second way, practically, that God prepares us. Number two, God prepares us through education. God prepares us through education. Look, God's people have always valued education. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, Moses addresses the entire people of Israel, and he says, look, I want you to devote yourself to learning and studying God's law. What is that? That's education. In Matthew chapter 22, Jesus said, hey, the greatest commandment is this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. What is that? Education. In Romans chapter 12, Paul said, hey, do not be conformed to this world. Instead, be transformed. How, Paul? By the renewing of your mind. Christians have always valued education, which is why the most prestigious universities in our country were all founded by Christians. Harvard, Yale, Princeton all started to train pastors, all of them. This is fascinating. The settlers in New England built Harvard in five years. They were freezing, they were hungry, and they're like, no, we got to build Harvard. Why? Because they thought it was better to go hungry than to have an uneducated church leadership. Man, Christians have always valued education, right? So, so what, does this, what does this mean? Well, it means that we need to value education. And we need to be careful not to make an error in two directions when it comes to education. Number one, we need to be careful not to waste it, okay? We need to be careful not to waste our education. So some of you are students here or grad students. You've been given four or five or maybe six years to devote yourself to learning, right? You, you might have a scholarship to do it. You don't have to do anything else. You get a time and a space in your life to devote yourself to learning, so do it. Man, read the Bible, study theology, understand history, think well, become the most well-spoken, articulate, responsible version of yourself, and then go shine a light somewhere, right? Don't waste your education, which means, this is what you say to yourself, okay, great, that means I can't get hung over because I have a larger calling on my life than fraternities and sororities, then like I have a bigger calling in my life than spring break, than like sleeping till one o'clock, right? There's a bigger call, there's a bigger story that God's invited me into. He's given me this incredible opportunity at UVA or PVCC or wherever you go to school, and God's like, hey, don't spend six years sleeping till one, eating bad food and playing video games, okay? Become the best version of you that you can be and then go be a light somewhere. Go use your degree to be a light on Capitol Hill, 
and in Manhattan and in Dubai and all these international companies. Like, go be a light somewhere with the education God has given you. Look, God didn't send Moses to Egypt University to sleep till one o'clock. He sent him there to get educated so he could write the most important book that's ever been written in human history. Man, I just want, I want you to get that, that this is an incredible season of your life that God has for a purpose, all right? So don't waste your education. But second, we also, we also shouldn't worship education. So here, here's the reality. Many, many people make academics and acceptance by the academic community a God in their life. And it is the most important thing to them. But friends, here's the deal. No matter how many degrees you acquire, no matter how many articles you publish, it won't satisfy your deepest longings or solve your greatest problems. It simply won't. And it is possible to possess great knowledge, but very little spiritual wisdom. It is possible to possess great knowledge, but very little spiritual wisdom. Do you know who had that? The Pharisees. The Pharisees were the PhDs of the age. I mean, they did nothing but study, and yet when Christ stood in front of them in the flesh, they rejected him. What did they have? Great knowledge. Very, very little spiritual wisdom. So don't allow education to become an obstacle to your relationship with God. Okay, so we shouldn't waste our education. We shouldn't worship our education. It's also important that we recognize that education doesn't stop when you graduate from high school or college or grad school. We are educating ourselves every single day based on the content that we consume. Every single day, we are educating ourselves based on the content that we consume. A Washington Post article came out last year that did a survey and found that in 2020, the average American consumed, get this, seven hours and 50 minutes of digital content every day. That is 56 hours of education every single week, right? And I want to I assume that you guys are the best, okay? That's not you guys. Let's just assume that we're we're 50% better than most Americans, okay? You guys are really good. You're sharp, okay? So that means you're consuming, and I'm consuming, four hours of digital content every day. 28 hours a week of education. I mean, most of you only take 12 hours a week of classes, right? So here's my question. Is the content that you're consuming making you more godly? Is it training you to love God? Is it training you to think well? Is it training you to be compassionate? Or, or is it just like junk food to your soul? Is it just like more and more entertainment, more and more immorality, more and more violence, more and more, man, shallow, superficial materialism, right? What is the content that you're consuming doing to your soul, right? We're all being educated every single day, and the question is, how am I educating myself? So we shouldn't worship education. We shouldn't waste education. What should we do with it? We should leverage it. We should leverage education just like Moses did. So here's the question. How can you use your education to glorify God? How can you use your education to glorify God? Are you a gifted writer? Are you a strategic thinker? Are you a medical professional, a law student, a teacher? Man, do you know how to manage money well? Do you know how to fix cars? Do you know how to hang drywall? That's all education. And that's not random. God didn't give you your gifts. He didn't give you your intellect randomly. It wasn't like he just like pulled a rabbit out of the hat. Oh, they're good at science, you know? No, he knits you together in your mother's womb, which includes your mind. And there's a reason why providentially he has made you good at what he's made you good at. Because he wants you to leverage it for the glory of God in the world. So how can you leverage your education for God's glory and for the good of others just like Moses did? God prepares us through education. Verse 11. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. You see, it's his people. He hasn't changed that. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. You see how the author is really emphasizing that? His people. He looked this way and that, 
And seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. All right, why do you check to see if nobody's around? Because you're about to do something stupid, right? Like, you're about to do something that you're not supposed to do. Well, that's what happened. And Moses did what we've all done. In a moment of weakness and passion, he sinned, and then he tried to cover it up. He killed this Egyptian, he murdered this man, and then he tried to hide him in the sand. And this action is going to change his life forever. And maybe that's how you feel today. Maybe you have done something that you feel like if anybody knows, it's going to change my life forever. Maybe that's why you hide the empty pill bottles. Maybe that's why you delete your browsing history. It's why you pay in cash. Because you're like, man, if anybody ever knew about this, man, my life would be over. I would be very, my life would be different. So we hide, so we cover up. It's a really old story. Adam and Eve tried to hide their sin with fig leaves. Moses tried to hide his sin with sand. We try to hide our sin with incognito browsers. Right? Same story, same feeling, different approach. Here's what's crazy. Before he was Moses the mediator, he was Moses the murderer. Before he was Moses the mediator, the man of God, he was Moses the murderer, the one fleeing from justice. And there are serious consequences in Moses' life because of this decision. We're going to see those. But here's, here's what I want to encourage you with if you're resonating with that right now. There's something like this weekend or a couple weeks ago, and you're like, man, I just don't know if my life will ever be the same. Somehow, God is going to use even this, even this grave sin to prepare Moses for his ultimate calling. And I believe he can do that in your life as well. Verse 13, when he, Moses, went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? And he answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. So the next day, uh, Moses tried to rebuke a man who was in sin, and the man did what most people do when you try to rebuke them in sin. He just attacked Moses. He was like, where do you get off trying to tell me what to do? You're going to kill me like you killed that guy yesterday? Right? And all of a sudden, Moses is like, "Uh uh-oh. Like, the game is up. This thing is known. I got to get out of Dodge. And he manages to get out of Egypt before Pharaoh can have him put to death. And he's on the run. And Moses ends up in this place called Midian. Okay? And Midian is a place that you go to be forgotten. I mean, Midian was the desert, sparsely populated, lots of sheep. Okay? Like, it wasn't an awesome place, definition of obscurity. So Moses, in one bad decision, goes from the corridors of power, man, to the edge of a dusty well. I mean, this is obscurity 100 And you've got to think that in this moment, this is a dark moment, and Moses is probably thinking, that's it. Like, my life is over. God could never use me now. I wonder if you've ever ever been there. If you've ever had that thought, man, it's over. God could never use me now. I remember a distinct moment in my life where I thought that. And the good news of this passage is, man, if God can redeem and work through a guy like Moses and a guy like me, then God can redeem and work through a guy or girl like you, because that is how good God is in his grace. And here's what's crazy. God is going to use this massive mistake for important reasons. Verse 15 begins 40 years of Moses and Midian. You're like, why does that matter? Midian is the place that Moses leads the Israelites through. Right? The wilderness that he somehow knows everything about and he knows where to carry them on. Like, oh, there's water over here. And like, don't go to that mountain range. And that's a bad area. How did he know that? He spent 40 years in it. He spent 40 years following sheep around in the wilderness. So when it came to shepherd millions of people through the wilderness, he was like, yeah, don't go that way, right? He's like, I've been over there. That was bad. I need to go this way. 
You see, God had Moses in Midian to prepare him for his ultimate calling, and he used his greatest mistake to get him there. Only God. All right, which leads to our third thing. Number three, God prepares us through mistakes. God prepares us through mistakes. God did it in Moses' life. He also did it in Peter's life. There's this great interaction in Luke chapter 22. And Jesus says, Peter, you're going to deny me. And Peter's like, no way. And Jesus is like, trust me on this. You're going to deny me. And when you do, you're then going to turn back. And when you turn back, this is what he says. I want you to strengthen your brothers. That's what Jesus says to him. He says, Peter, I want you to strengthen your brothers because they fall away too. Peter gets a bad rap, but like, where's the rest of the disciples? They all fall away. Peter turns back and is able to empathize with and encourage the other disciples. Hey, guys, Jesus is gracious. He's restored me. And I like boldly said, I'd never do this. He restored me. He can restore you. You see, here is the good news. Your greatest mistakes can become your greatest ministry. Your greatest mistakes can become your greatest ministry. I mean, just think about it. If you're struggling in your marriage, who do you want to talk to? I'll tell you who you don't want to talk to, that couple that never fights. And they're like, you got in an argument. What was that like? And you're like, I don't want to talk to you ever again. You know, it's like, you want to talk to the other couple that had a really hard couple of years but made it through, right? If you're struggling with anxiety, who do you want to talk to? You want to talk to the woman that's like, I understand. I know what it's like to feel irrational anxiety but not know what to do with it. Like, there is hope. I've made it through. I'm in a better place. You see, friends, your greatest mistakes can become your greatest ministry by the grace of God. We, we see this happen throughout the Christian community. I mean, I think um, Dave Ramsey's an example of this. Whatever you think about Dave Ramsey, he's got this massive ministry helping people get out of debt. Do you know why he started the ministry? Because he went bankrupt. He went totally bankrupt, rock bottom. He's like, I've got to help people manage their money better so they don't make the same mistake that I did. Another example is a guy named Chuck Colson. Chuck Colson was a brilliant man. He was a part of the Nixon administration. He got all wrapped up in the Watergate scandal, okay? And he went to prison because of his role in the Watergate scandal. You know, talk about corridors of power to utter obscurity. And in prison, he comes to faith in Christ. And while in prison, he just gets this burden for prison ministry. And so when he gets out, he uses his connections, he uses his intelligence to found a prison ministry that is now, hear me, on every continent in the world. What happened? Chuck Colson's greatest mistake became his greatest ministry. And this is so unique to the Christian gospel. Here's what the world says. You ready? If you make a mistake, it's over. If we dig up a picture from you in high school, man, if we find some tweet that you put out five years ago and it's not currently in vogue in our cultural moment, that's it. You better, you better strap in because it's coming. Right? We're going to scold you. We're going to judge you. We're going to cancel you. We're going to deplatform you. Your life is over. Good luck getting another job. And there are stories of that happening to people. Like, hey, I'm a 28-year-old. I did something really foolish when I was 17. Everybody found out about it. And I can't get a job now. Right? That is what the world does with you if you make a mistake. Here's what the gospel does with you. It forgives you. It cleanses you. It transforms you. And it empowers you to go minister to other people. And praise God for his grace. So what mistake in your life does God want to turn into a ministry? And did you waste your college years? Right? Did you have a really, really hard marriage? Were you in crushing amounts of debt? Man, invest in some of the people around here. Find somebody that you can invest in and be like, hey, don't, don't make the same mistake that I made. I know it. I know what it's like to feel that way, but it can change. Man, how has God given you mistakes that he wants to turn into ministries? Just like he did with Moses. All right, verse 16. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. 
When they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, how is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter, Zipporah, and she gave birth to a son and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. So Moses had this protector instinct, which was a good thing. It just needed to be refined. So when he saw these women being harassed by these shepherds, he stood up and he delivered them and he drove the shepherds off. And then as a servant, man, he, he watered the whole flock for these women. So they get back earlier than they usually do. And their father's like, hey, what's going on? And so they, they told their father what happened. And the man is referred to as Ruel. Other parts of the scripture, he's called Jethro. So I'm just going to use Jethro because that's the name that I remember from being a kid. Okay. And Jethro was a really established man. All right. So man, Jethro had a house. Jethro had flocks, Jethro was married, Jethro had seven daughters, you know, praise God for that man, bless his heart, right? He had seven daughters, and he was the priest of Midian, which meant he was a spiritual leader. So, so he provided spiritual oversight to a large group of people. And here's what's beautiful. When Moses hit rock bottom, Jethro put his arm around him. When Moses is at the end of his rope, Jethro brought him into his family. He gave him a place to live, he gave him food to eat, he gave him a job to work, and eventually gave him his daughter to marry. Right? For 40 years, Jethro taught Moses. He taught Moses to shepherd. He taught Moses how to build a marriage. He taught Moses how to parent. He taught Moses how to lead people spiritually. And this is a defining turning point in Moses' life to the point that in the future, when Moses doesn't know what to do, he's always like, someone go get Jethro. Somebody go get Jethro. I need some advice from my father-in-law. You see, Jethro leveraged his life experience for Moses' good, which leads to the last thing. God prepares us through mentors. God prepares us through mentors. Moses had Jethro. Joshua had Moses. David had Samuel. Elisha had Elijah. Timothy had Paul. Mentorship is one way that God prepares you for your calling, which is why in Titus chapter 2, older women are called to train younger women, and older men are called to train younger men. What do you need when you've messed up? What do you need when you're confused, when you're overwhelmed, when you don't know what to do? You need a Jethro. Or if you're a woman, you need a Jethro, okay? <laughs> you need an older man or woman to put their arm around you and say, man, I understand. I know what that li that's like. Let's work on this together. We have some awesome men and women in our church. We do. And, I'm, and I praise God for you and I'm grateful for you. What would it look like for you to be a Jethro in someone else's life? Let me speak real particularly to a group of people. If you're in your 30s or above, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, I think God has you here on purpose. And it could be that you're like, this isn't the kind of church I'm used to. The music is different. The preaching's a little bit different. The people seem young. I think God has you here to leverage your life experience for the good of other people. To put your arm around a young guy or a young girl and be like, hey, I know, I know what you're going through. Let's walk through this together. Man, let me, let me coach you on what my wife and I have learned in 30 years of marriage. Let me help you understand how to get a mortgage and how to understand career and how to understand balance between, you know, family and church and work and all these things. Man, I think God has you here to leverage your life experience for the sake of the gospel. If I could be very pointed with you for just a second, God has not given you all the experience he's given you so that you could retire and collect seashells. He's given you all of the experience he's given you so that you can leverage it for his glory and the good of all. We got a lot of young people at this church, okay? We need a whole lot of Jethro's, all right? And the truth is, you're never too young to be a Jethro, right? There's always somebody coming behind you that you can invest in. I love it. Two of our college students serve as volunteer leaders in our middle school ministry. 
Because to a middle schooler, you're a Jethro, right? They're like, how old are you? You can drive. That's amazing, right? So you're never too young to do this. So let me just ask you, how does God want you to use your life experience to invest in the next generation? How does God want you to be a Jethro or Jethra in somebody's life? Man, I believe that it could be transformative in our church. All right, verse 23, or verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So while Moses was in Midian, the people of Israel were still enslaved, and they were still suffering. And they were crying out to God. And the text says that God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant. And in fact, God was already preparing an answer to their prayers. That man's name was Moses. You see, God was actually preparing an answer to the prayers that they hadn't prayed yet. You see, Moses wasn't prepared for himself. Moses was prepared for God's glory and the good of others. And friends, God hasn't providentially prepared you for you so that you could be healthy, wealthy, and prosperous. He has prepared you so that you might go and shine a light somewhere, so that you might leverage your life for the good of others and for the glory of God in this world. God is orchestrating all the events of your life, even the bad ones, towards preparation and purpose so that you can make an impact for his kingdom. Verse 25, God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Here's the thing. Verse 23 is the very first time in the entire book of Exodus that God is mentioned. Go back and read it. Verse 23 is the very first time that God is mentioned. For two chapters, everything has been falling apart. Everything has been going wrong, and the people are like, God, where are you? And I've been telling you over the last two weeks that providence means God is orchestrating all of the events of your life, the good and the bad, towards his glory, and you're good. That's what I've been telling you. But that's really, really hard to believe sometimes. Right? It's really hard to believe when you're like anxious and lonely and you're single and you hate your job, and and you're not connected with your family, right? You've got some sort of disability. It feels like, God, how could any of this make sense? And it's like, God, where are you? It doesn't feel like God sees, it doesn't feel like God hears, and it doesn't feel like God knows. So how do we know that this verse is true? How do we know that God did hear the Israelites, that God did see the Israelites, and that God did remember his covenant? Well, we know that because in chapter three, God sent. We know that God hears, that God sees, and God knows because God sent a deliverer, Moses. And the way that you know that God sees and that God hears and that God knows you and what you're going through is that God sent a deliverer 2,000 years ago. The truer and better Moses, Jesus Christ. You see, you can look at the life of Christ and say, you know what, there was another baby who had to be hidden and protected from genocide. There was another deliverer who was misunderstood by his people. The Hebrew man said to Moses, who made you a prince over us? The Pharisees said to Jesus, how dare you call yourself the son of God? Moses defended his future bride at the well. Jesus defended his future bride at the cross. God sees, God knows, God hears. And God is orchestrating every single event in your life for his glory and the good of his people. How do you know that? Because 2,000 years ago, God sent. He sent Christ to die on a cross that he didn't deserve. 
He sent Christ not just to die for you, but instead of you, so that you could be forgiven of your sin, so that you could be called into the family of God, and so that you could be given a glorious calling in this world. See, we can have confidence that God is for us and that God is with us. Because as Paul says in Romans 8, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So what is God preparing you to do? Father, thank you for sending Christ, our ultimate deliverer, who delivers us from the penalty and the power of sin, places his spirit within us so that we can follow you. God, I pray for all of us here today that we would really believe that in the good and in the bad, you are working, you are in control, and we can trust you. And I pray that you would show every one of us, God, what is it that you have for us to do that we might glorify you?